Pull out your Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 is where we go. If you don't own a Bible or you forgot your Bible, ushers are coming down the aisle. We'd love to give you one of those. Very special welcome to guests, visitors. We love you already. We're glad you're here. We view you as a part of our family. On your first Sunday, welcome to the family. We're so thankful to have you. And we're back into Ecclesiastes. Raise your hand if you've learned something brand new about Christian faith through the study of Ecclesiastes. Every hand should go up. Come on now. There it is. I, so I have a theory. I have a theory that I thought about this week. Um, why people are so drawn to Ecclesiastes. Christian and non-Christian people, because as we've learned, even, even people who are not Bible people study this book and love this book. And the theory is this, um, Ecclesiastes is refreshingly honest about life in this world, isn't it? I feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes has no qualms just taking his finger and sticking it into the mess of our world. He's like, I'm just going to talk about all of the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, makes us feel weird, all the futility and frustration we experience. I'm going to talk about how wisdom isn't going to be enough down here. Pleasure will never fulfill you. He just goes on and on and on. There's problems with justice and government and even going to work is, can be just hevel. And he just says, let's just talk about it, right? The writer of Ecclesiastes, it's like the, the one book that was written on Monday morning, you know, when you're like, I, I'm not going to smooth it over anymore. I'm not going to try to polish this up. Ecclesiastes is like doing ministry in the children's department. Somebody's going to say something awkward eventually. And a couple years ago, people always give me books. And somebody came up many years ago and gave me a book called Children's Letters to God. Have you ever heard of this book? This is fabulous. A couple sociologists who went around the country to classrooms and Sunday school rooms. And they just, they handed a piece of paper and a pen to children. And they said, you can say anything you want to God. Ask God a question, uh, make comments, give God some advice, you know, whatever you want to say. And uh, these are absolutely classic, and I'll just share a couple of them. Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? Signed, <laughs> Anita. Dear God, is Pastor David a friend of yours, or do you just know him through business? <laughs> Donnie. I love that. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. Joyce. This one's my favorite. This is my favorite. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this summer. Peter. <laughs> oh, boy. That's good. And then how about this? Hey, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. I love it. It works with my brother. It's time to have a conversation about, because we've talked about so many things. We've talked about pleasure. We've talked about wisdom. We've talked about work. And what, I, what we're going to have a conversation today about is religion. So what, the writer, what I love about the writer of Ecclesiastes does is he says, I'm going to talk about it all. I'm going to talk about all the stuff, and I'm, and I'm, going to, I'm going to approach it under the sun, remember? So he says, let's have a conversation about what it's like to actually do life down here 
and sometimes forgetting what's really going on in the spiritual realm. And he says, the next thing we need to talk about, we need to have a really honest conversation about church and how easy it is for church, even church under the sun to kind of devolve into this vanity that he talks about, almost like hevel. It can get empty. So will you look at Ecclesiastes 5 with me? I'm just going to read seven verses. We'll talk about it a little bit. Here's what he does next. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. That's our word, hevel. That phrase, just look at that phrase. He's saying, when church becomes daydreaming, my mind's wandering, and I'm just saying stuff that I'm not really thinking about, he says we're devolving back into that emptiness, right? And then he says, finally, but God is the one you must fear. I could summarize that whole paragraph with this phrase. Religion is not the same thing as reverence. And what God wants is reverence. Amen? And those are not the same. Have you ever noticed how sometimes a space can open up? I, a space in my life, this, I see it sometimes, this space opens up between my religious practice the stuff I'm doing, there's a space between that. It's like what I'm doing with my mouth, my head, my hands. And suddenly I become aware that's actually not where my heart is right now. Has it ever happened to you? So I love this passage. And here's, this is just, there's so much wisdom in here. But I'm going to just give you, I'm going to, I broke it into what I'm calling three cautions. So what I think he's doing is he's saying, here's three cautions that can help protect the church from religious emptiness. And he, and he says it like this. Three things. Come to the house of God thoughtfully. Verse one. Worship in the house of God humbly. Two and three. And leave the house of God faithfully. Isn't that cool? What's happening when you're on your way here? What's happening once you get in here? And what's happening on the way out? Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, all the way through. I skipped Wednesday and Thursday. Who cares? You get it. 
So let's talk about that this morning just a little bit. Number one, come to the house of God thoughtfully. We look at your Bible, verse 1. What does he mean? What does Solomon or the preacher, we call him the preacher, what does he mean when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God? Is he talking about physically, like make sure you don't trip? We know that's not what he's talking about, right? This is so profound. I've never really noticed how much we need this verse. Solomon is saying, do not come to church carelessly. Now, by the way, everything I'm about to say is for all of you regulars. If you're, if you're a visitor or this is your first time, I want you to know, you can come to church as carelessly as you want. We love you. All right? You're so welcome here. Now I'm talking to the people who you, you show up here every Sunday. This is a part of the rhythm of your life. Think about this. Whoa, the wisdom of Solomon to say, how thoughtful are you on your way here? Be intentional. It means approach God with caution. This is a big deal. The context is that of a worshiper walking into the house of God, which the immediate context would have been the temple in Jerusalem. This is the temple that Solomon would have, he would have gone to regularly. But we, can, we know that this can apply to any, any house of worship, any place that's set up where people gather to worship the living God. He's essentially saying, watch your step on your way here. Pay attention to your way of life, even before church begins. Here's another way to say it. There is a right way and a wrong way to come to church, right? The wrong way would probably include, but might not necessarily be limited to, the following things. Coming to church, hungover, frantic, habitually late, habitually, habitually sleep-deprived, habitually critical, hangry, ornery, entitled. Some of us come to church the way I show up to jury duty, all right? Right? And if we're being honest, like, wow, that's amazing. Why do I come to church like that? Remember the story I was thinking this week about, remember the story in the book of Exodus, Exodus 3, when it's the burning bush moment? This is an amazing story. And there's so much about it because God reveals his personal name and God commissions Moses. But if you remember in the story, Exodus 3, what's happening in that story is that Moses is out in a desert and he's, this is after he's been exiled out of, out of um, Egypt and he's wandering in the wilderness of Midian and he's tending a flock of sheep. And as he's wandering in the wilderness, uh, the, book, the book of Moses tells us that the angel of the Lord appears to him in this burning bush and the fire never consumes the bush. And oh, I mean, I could preach an entire sermon on that one verse. But so he, he looks at this and, and, it, and it says Moses looked and, and he saw the bush and he thought, I'm going to turn aside and go check that out, which, right, you would do that. So as he's approaching, God sees that he's turned aside. And what did God say to him? God said, Moses, there's hot coffee in the foyer. Come on in, right? No. What did God say? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. 
Now, if you wanted to play a prank on me, church, next Sunday, you could all take your shoes off in the foyer. Like, please, for the love of holiness, don't do that. But do you get the point? That take off your shoes is, I view it more, less as a physical thing and more as like a, well, now wait a minute, Lord. What am I actually showing up to? Like, what's actually happening here when we all walk through those doors and there's joy and fellowship and I love all of it and there's worship, but, but there's something else going on here. And I think if we really got it, we would never come to church in a cavalier way. Because what does Solomon say? Guard your steps as you come to the house of God. Okay, this is one of those phrases where we totally, we miss it. We have, that, that has no impact on us. But for the Israelites, ancient Jewish people, that phrase, house of God, would have sent them to all of these astounding places in their scriptures. It's like a hyperlink. You know a hyperlink? You click on it and it takes you somewhere else. House of God, the number one place that would take them is Genesis 28 where Jacob is asleep. He's out in the wilderness and he's asleep and he has a dream where he sees a ladder going up into heaven, a stairway, okay? And he sees angels ascending and descending, and then Yahweh, the creator God, the covenant God of his fathers, Isaac and Abraham, shows up at the bottom of the ladder and says, Jacob, I will be with you forever. And Jacob wakes up and says, the first thing out of his mouth, I did not know that God was in this place. Surely this is the house of God. This is the house of God. And that phrase becomes the paradigm for the tabernacle, the tent that the, that the people set up and the, and the Shekinah glory would fall on it. It became the paradigm for the, temp, the temple later. And then it becomes the paradigm for the church of the living God. Paul says, the church is the household of the living God. Do you know what that means? Every time you and I walk into this room, God is here. No, wait a minute. The living God of the universe dwells with his people every time we gather for worship. Did you know that? Did you know that? So when you're walking down that oddly long sidewalk into the sanctuary, are you, what are you thinking? Are you saying, oh my goodness, God is going to visit us today. I'm going to be in the presence of the living God with my brothers and sisters. Wouldn't that change the way you came to church? I hope so. So here's something really practical. I'm gonna put up a, before you come to church, here's some things you could do. Don't even try to do all of these. Just pick the one that makes the most sense to you, all right? Pray for the church. Start praying on Saturday night. Oh, God, please, would you move in our church? I pray for guests and visitors. They would feel loved and welcome. I pray, this, I pray the gospel would go forth. Like, pray. We need your prayers. Worship on the way. A lot of us, we, we're, we're, we're not worshiping until we sit down in that chair, and then all of a sudden we're expecting suddenly for 
worship to just erupt in us, and it, there's something about worshiping on your way to church. Amen? Like, it's, I've heard it said, like, even the strongest rain, if it hits really dry ground, it's just going to run off. But if even a little bit of mist hits that ground before, then when the rain hits, it'll actually soak into your heart. Just a little bit of mist on your way. Maybe, you're, maybe on the drive-in, you, you, you turn on a worship song and you just attend to your heart. That's my next one. Attend to my heart. What's actually going on in my heart as I show up? Some of you need to eat something before you come to church, okay? You go to the communion table like it is your last supper because you're so hungry. Just eat a hard-boiled egg. I don't know, okay? Read ahead. Read ahead. We teach through the scriptures most of the time, verse by verse. Next, I'll tell you about that for next week. But you, all you have to do is just read ahead. Okay, they finish chapter 4. I'll read chapter 5. And just start soaking. Mute your phone. That's just a tiny little personal request. Thank you. I love your ringtones. They're weird, odd, crazy. But anyway, and then watch out. Keep your, kind of keep on the lookout for spiritual resistance. Do you think that our spiritual enemy wants you to show up to church ready to worship. I promise you, he's going to cause you to get a speeding ticket, get in a fight with someone. Like, it, I mean, all kinds of things. Just be on the lookout. Amen? Come to the house of God thoughtfully. But that's not all. Once you're here, worship in the house of God humbly. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to I'm going to make an argument, and I'm going to demonstrate it in the text. But before I demonstrate it, I want you to just think about this. I want you to think with me for just a minute about the relationship between worship and humility. Now, just think about this. Worship, what we're doing here, and humility. How critical would humility be? Here's my argument. Humility may be the most critical ingredient that we bring to a, a genuine experience of worship. It might be the, 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 the key ingredient. So if I were to say, what are the main ingredients of a great worship service? Some of you would say, really inspirational worship, a dynamic sermon, lots of prayer, fellowship. But how many of us would say, oh, but the key ingredient is for me when I'm there in God's presence to have genuine humility in my heart and all of my neighbors. See, if we all did that, man, the, the roof of the church would get blown off. And I think it's true. See, when the preacher says, verse two, look at that, do not be rash with your mouth, we know he has more in mind there simply than what we're doing with our lips that physical act of rushing to speak, there's a deeper heart thing going on there. If I'm, if I'm constantly talking or rushing to speak or what kind of stuff coming out of my mouth, we know from the scriptures, don't stay there. Don't, don't just evaluate that. Get into the heart and ask, what's going on in my heart? And that's why the very next thing he says, see that, let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God right? Do I really mean what I say when I'm singing? Do I really mean what I say when I'm, when I'm praying that prayer? 
How many times, this happens to me all the time, I'll get, I'll be in a moment of worship. This happened a couple Sundays ago, I was standing over here, and I was worshiping, and I had my hands up, and then suddenly my mind started wandering. Has this ever happened to you? And my mind was, and, and at one moment I was like, is my shirt sticking up? Because I had my hands up, you know, and I was, wait, can people see my belly? This is awkward. And like, Do I have a muffin top? And then it just went, you know, it just went off to wherever it goes. How about you? It's okay. Like, let, we, we have the grace of Jesus, but let's, let's think about that. I think, what, I think what he's doing in this, he's saying, stay attentive. What's my heart doing in that moment? Do I want to close the gap? I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to say stuff I don't mean. I think that's why, if you notice in this passage, there's this delicate balance of listening and speaking. Do you see that? All throughout this passage, he says, what's the, what's the balance between how much I talk and how much I listen? The end of verse one, when he says, to draw near to listen is to is better than sacrifice. We've come to listen to God. God wants to speak. This, we've not come to say things to God first. We've come to hear things from God, and then worship is our response back to him because he's said things to us through his word, through the message. Have you ever felt that moment when the, when the sermon ends and the communion starts, and you can just feel God has spoken to people, and people are ready to just praise him, that's because that's what the service is. We've come to hear God. So he says, you know, monitor your words, all of that. It reminds me, uh, can you think of a verse in the New Testament in the book of James that's really close to this passage where he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. I love that. It's a great way to think about worship. It doesn't mean we don't say things. We do. We should be talking to God through the worship, but we should also be really listening. And remember, folks, even though my mouth is closed, it doesn't mean my ears are open. Sometimes my mouth is closed, but my heart is racing, and I'm thinking about all kinds of things, and I'm critiquing, wow, the subwoofers are too loud, and that sermon is really dragging on to, and I'm just critiquing, but my heart is not listening to God. Amen? Amen? And here's what he does. Look at this phrase, verse two. He says, remember, God is in heaven. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Folks, that's not a statement about geography, all right? This is a statement about ultimate reality. God, you are God, and we are not. And so I'm gonna let my words be few. I'm gonna be so humble. I saw a meme that went around this last week called The Theology of Cats and Dogs. Have you ever seen this meme? This is amazing. The meme goes like this. The dog says to its owner, you feed me, you pet me, and you love me? You must be God. And the cat says, you feed me, you pet me, you love me? I must be God. <laughs> and that's why we love cats so much, okay? Here's the problem. I am not God. I am not God, and neither are you. We have a God. He's sovereign and holy, and he's got a word for us. 
But sometimes we're talking so much, even just in our hearts, we can't hear anything that he wants to say to us. So Solomon says, be circumspect. I love this word. You know the word circumspect? Like, be really wary. Pay it. I want to pay attention throughout the worship. What's going on in my heart? So good. And I will close with this real quick. I want to cast a vision for our church of the impact in our city if we just started doing this. Imagine, just imagine with me for a minute, hundreds and hundreds of people who gather every Sunday at River West with this kind of humility, this kind of passion, this kind of reverence for God. What that would do, how it would spread, how it would break up dry ground in our city, how it would force people to, to reject some of the stereotypes they have maybe about Christianity or some of the hurt they have. How much are we hearing about church hurt in our world? And a lot of that church hurt is real. People have been in churches where there's been arrogance and carelessness, people saying things they didn't think about, and suddenly people leave the church. It's almost like I read, a, I read a, a, a chapter of a book called this week called When the Church Becomes an Atheist Maker. And I was devastated. I read it, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I don't want our church to be the place where people come and realize I don't want to have anything to do with God because of my experience there. Amen? And it starts with humility. I heard an incredible illustration this week that I'm just going to blatantly steal from a scholar named Nijay Gupta. Who, he stole it from somebody else, so he's, we're all stealing in the illustrations. But the, the, the illustration goes like this. If, if, I, if I asked you, um, how many of you love tomatoes? Maybe some of you would raise your hand, half the room or something. And, and, and the reason is because when, when I say how many of you love tomatoes, you're probably thinking of those pale, like, tomatoes that are in the deli, the salad bar line that were picked six months before they were ripe, you know what I mean? But then if I took you outside in August to a garden and we walked into a field of cherry tomatoes that were vine ripened, and we all picked one, and we put it in our mouth, and it just exploded. And, and then I said, how many of you like tomatoes? We would all go, oh my gosh, I love tomatoes. Amen? River West, can we be a vine-ripened cherry tomato church? <laughs> For Jesus? I'm not kidding. I want people to come in here and go, oh my gosh, if this is what tomatoes taste like, I want to be a part of it. Amen? Come to the house of God thoughtfully. Worship in the house of God humbly. And then finally, leave the house of God faithfully. Will you look at your Bible, verses four through seven? What is the deal with the vows? When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. So we moderns, we struggle because vows are not a common part of our worship anymore, but it was very common in ancient Israel to make a vow to God. Worshipers would come into the temple and God would speak and they would be moved and, and they would feel this sense of like, God, and they would, they would vow to give things to God. 
A lot of times the vows in ancient Israel were the worshipers uh, committing to offer a sacrifice or some part of their tithe. So a lot of it was tithes and sacrifices and then they would come back the, fo the following day or the following week to worship and they would fulfill the vow they had made. And the point the preacher's making in this passage is he's saying, this is simple, it's faithfulness. He's saying, when you make a vow to God, don't, do not make that vainly. If you make a commitment to God, fulfill that commitment. In verse six, the messenger, see there, it's kind of a weird verse, but the idea was that when the messenger shows up, this would have been a representative from the temple who would show up and say, hey, you, you made this vow last week at worship to give this much, and I'm here to collect on that. That'd be like us sending one of our ushers to your front door on Sunday when you're skipping church. Hey, you're tithing. You'd be like, why is Dwayne Carlson on my front doorstep? This is really uncomfortable, all right? And the idea is the person says, vow? What vow? I didn't say vow, you know. I said wow or some whatever, right? Like, don't, don't lie. Don't back out of the thing. Now, we don't, we don't vow like that anymore, but I, I guarantee you what happens now is we sit in worship. God moves. I know he's moving right now. And we get this sense, Lord, I know it's time for me to give that up. It's time for me to set that down. Time for me to break that habit. Time for me, Lord God, to, to really turn my life over to you. You're so clearly God. I love Jesus. Solomon's saying, that conviction that you feel in that moment, that's the spirit of the living God moving in your heart. And as you respond to that, walk out of here faithfully by God's grace. I have this amazing quote. I have to read it from Alexander McLaren. Um, he, he, he was a Scottish uh, pastor who served in Manchester for like 30 years. And I've been reading one of his books and I'm like, oh, I wish I could write like this. But he says, many a young heart touched by the truth has resolved to live a Christian life and has gone out from the house of God and put off and put off till days have thickened into months and years and the, attention, and the intention has remained unfulfilled forever. Nothing hardens hearts, stiffens wills, and sears, that's supposed to be sears, sears consciences so much as to be brought to the point of melting and then to cool back down into the same old shape. Isn't that wild? You know that moment when the Spirit of God takes you to the place of melting and you know, God, you are telling me something and I need to do it. Don't walk out those doors and cool right back down into your old self. That keeps happening over and over and over. How long before you become seared and hardened? Oh, friends, there's so much wisdom in this passage. And here's the thing, we don't have to do this alone. In fact, don't try to do this alone. Jesus can give you the power to worship God the way Solomon describes it here. Amen? Just imagine Jesus when he was on earth, how he would come to the temple of God. I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder what he was praying about. And then there he is worshiping. Try to get into a temple and imagine Jesus worshiping his heavenly father. Or Jesus leaving 
knowing commitments he had made. And did you know something? When you're united to Christ in faith, that perfect worship, the the perfect worship of Jesus, did you know that worship becomes your worship? God looks at you through Christ, even your imperfect worship, those moments where your mind wanders or you break a vow, God looks at you and he goes, I see the perfect worship of my son, Jesus Christ, who not only died for her sin, he also lived the perfect life in her place, including perfect worship. Amen? And so you just lean into Christ. Jesus, change us, we pray change us. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, as the worship team comes and we prepare to go to the table, would you continue to speak, Lord? We pray in this moment that our hearts would slow down. The inner narrative, the Whatever it is rattling around by your grace, God, might you still it in this moment. We need to hear you, Lord. We need to hear a word from the living God. And you promised to speak if we would only let our words be few. And so as we go to the table this morning, we go with gratitude. I cannot believe the the extent of your love for us that you would send your son to suffer and die in our place. And he rose in victory. And we can have a relationship with Jesus. And so we praise you for our God. May we be people who worship thoughtfully and humbly and faithfully, we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen.